know, when a lot of people, when Christmas comes around, it becomes very, uh, there's a lot of anxiety around Christmas. We don't recognize that. For a lot of people, it puts them in, you know, financial anxiety. Maybe they can't afford what they'd like to do for people, so they feel that anxiousness in their soul. And then there's others that, you know, there's, there's relational tension around Christmas, People have expectations, and there's many times there's family conflict. And so, you know, for some people, Christmas is not a great season. You know, even though they love the fact that it's the birth of Christ, you know, some of them are reminded of losses. They're not going to be sharing with loved ones this Christmas season. So it brings a, you know, mixed emotion. That's what I'm trying to get at. And so when I think of Christmas, the first Christmas, what I see is a very obscure couple in the bigger scheme of the Roman Empire. They've been moved by an edict of Caesar to go to a little hamlet. And now you've got to think about this. This is a 90-mile trip, not in one of our beautiful vehicles with air conditioning or heated seats or whatever we have, right, heaters and all the rest of it. No, she's nine months traveling, probably on a donkey. Maybe she's walking. I don't know. How many of you women, you're nine months pregnant, thinking, i got to walk 90 miles? That is not what I call a fun experience, I'm sure. And then she gets to the little town of Bethlehem, and there's no room for them. There's no room, it says, in the inn. And eventually, they end up you know, spending the night with the animals. And that's that night that she gives birth to her firstborn child, And I can just see Joseph. He's the only person. There's no family. There's no support. And there's this frantic father, first child. Can you imagine giving birth and all you have is your frantic husband who's never seen this experience before? How many get a little sense? This is not what I call, you know, a very, you know, wonderful, warm, fuzzy moment. Does anybody get this? You know, see, we have painted such a picture in our mind of what it's like. What I see is this obscurity. What I see is this humble origin where the God of all the universe comes down and is born in a place where animals are kept. Is that amazing? He's put it in a feeding trough. You know, it's so mind-boggling to me. When I think about Jesus, everything about his birth his life, the way he was unjustly treated, innocent suffer, crucified, maligned, betrayed, dishonored, shamed. It all speaks of the humility of the person of Christ. And we see that. Powerful. You know, one of the things that impairs our relationship to God, one of the barriers of that relationship with God is this whole issue in our life of pride. And I I don't think we realize how much there is inside of our lives. Think about it. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what Jesus says to him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the Bible says he couldn't do it. Now, I want to I pull us back a bit. You know, at that moment, maybe we can somehow identify the rich young ruler and say, man, I've got to give up everything to follow Jesus. Man, that's a huge demand on Jesus' part. See, that's all we think. Can I pull us away from the story? Pull us back a little bit. And I want you to think about time versus all of eternity. Let me ask you a question. If you could have eternal life, if you could have all of eternity in blessedness, what would you give for it? 
Everything. Wouldn't it be worth to give up everything to get what God is promising? Yet he couldn't do it. Why couldn't he do it? Because he was so locked into this life and what he was putting his trust in at the moment that he forfeited what was his future. That is a challenging thought. We don't think of it that way. Let me give you another story. And it's a parable. And I'm going to use a little sanctified imagination. I'm going to borrow this from this man. Uh, I, I forget his... I could probably look it up here. i got him in my notes here. Let's see. Juan Ortez. Okay? I don't know him. But he has this little sanctified imagination. I'm going to borrow his story for a minute because I think it's so important. It's the story of the pearl of great price. How many know this parable? It's the person who discovers this amazing treasure, this pearl, and is willing to give up everything to secure this great price, this great pearl. And really, it's the idea of what we're willing to give in order to receive what God has for us. Let me give you the story. We walk up and we realize, I really want this pearl. I really want what the gospel provides. I really want eternal life. But there's a price to it. And the seller says to us, it's very expensive. Well, just how expensive is it? It's a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have. And then we make up our mind. Okay, I'm willing to give up everything I have. Well, what do you have? Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Okay, good, $10,000. What else do you have? Well, that's it. You have nothing else? Well, I have a few dollars on me. Dig it out. 20 50 dollars $100, $120. You got to give that up too. Oh, okay. Eventually, what else do you have? Well, I don't have anything else. Well, do you live somewhere? Yeah. Do you have a house? Yes. You got to give up your house. What do you mean I got to give up my house? Do you mean I got to live in my camper? You got a camper? You've got to give that up. You mean I'm going to have to live in my car? You've got a car? I've got two of them. You got to give that up as well. Both those cars are mine now. What else? Well, you have everything. You got my money, my house, my cars, my camper. What else do you want? Are you alone in this world? Well, I have a wife and two kids. Oh, you got to give them up too. You got to give up your wife. You got to give up your two kids. Really? I have nothing left. What else? Suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forgot. You got to give up yourself. Everything is mine wife, children, house, car, camper, everything. And then he says this. Now listen, I'm going to allow you to use all of these things for the time being. But don't forget, they belong to me. Just as you belong to me. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I am the owner. You see, unless we get this mindset, folks, we have all kinds of problems. You know, George MacDonald said something very interesting. He says, the reason why we struggle to serve God is because we're not free. He says this, a man or a woman is in bondage to whatever he cannot part with. That's powerful. Whatever we can't give up. Whatever is impeding is that which we put our trust in. And that's what is keeping us from what God has ultimately for us. You know, that's why Jesus said it's impossible for the rich to enter into the kingdom, the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now you have to understand what the rich man is. The rich man is the person who's trusting in his riches. It's not that God is against money. God's going to use it. 
He's going to use what he's giving us, and he wants us to be good stewards of it. You know, so often we lack of understanding of who God really is and what he's after in our lives. We look to ourselves, and often we find ourselves lacking. Isn't that true? You know, what can I really contribute God? Or we compare ourselves with someone else, and therefore when we do that, we feel like, well, compared to this person, what do I have to offer? And then we don't do anything. It's amazing how we excuse ourselves from all kinds of things. And yet God is the one who's trying to get us to realize that when you and I give up everything, he has something significant in mind for you specifically, for me specifically to do. We need to know that. So what moves people from the sidelines to the playing field in their service for King Jesus? Well, I think we have to have a renewed vision of God and a proper understanding of who we really are that strips away all of the pretense in our lives. Because you know there's a lot of pretense in this world. We're all pretending to be something. Well, get rid of all that stuff. Let's get right down to bedrock tonight and watch what begins to happen. Because I believe that there is a a quality that God wants to develop inside of us that's going to transform our lives. Do you know, I'm bringing us back to what I call the Magna Carta of the Christian life. That's the Great Charter, by the way, the Magna Carta. Great Charter. And what is that? Well, it's found in the Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mound. And I want to look at these attitudes he starts out with, the Beatitudes. These are the things that you and I need to cultivate. This is the attitude that God needs to frame inside of our lives because what we think we actually become, it shapes our character. And what we become shapes what we actually do. And that is so profound. So everything starts with how we're thinking. And that's why the B attitudes, what we, the attitudes we need to cultivate and develop in our lives are so critical to the development of our character, which in turn shapes what you and I are going to become and do in life. Powerful. Starts with our minds. Let's take a look. Jesus now goes up on a mountainside. Some of us have had the privilege of going to Israel. We've been to this mountainside. We've sat down. Jesus is sitting down. His disciples sit down, and he begins to teach them. And he starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the people that are going to inherit eternal life. These are the people that acquire that amazing pearl of great price. These are the people that are going to live with God for all of eternity. How many of God's amazing? So what is this attitude that we need to cultivate in order to secure this amazing, beautiful gift. Well, we need to be poor in spirit. So I want to take a look at two aspects of being poor in spirit. First of all, what in the world does it mean? I think we're confused. A lot of people think it means we don't have anything. We don't have any finances. You know, They think it's that. Do we really understand this concept of being poor in spirit? Some of us see being poor in spirit as a doormat. People are walking over That's not what it's about. I want to give you three things what it's not. First of all, it's not talking about financial poverty. How many know Abraham was a rich man, but yet he was poor in spirit? So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you and I recognize in and of ourselves we have nothing to bring to God. We have nothing to offer God. We're totally inadequate when it comes to our relationship to God and even with other people. There's a bankruptcy in our lives. We have to recognize that. And then we recognize that it's God who brings the riches into our lives, and it's God who empowers us. So we kind of come away with this attitude. First of all, I can do nothing. Without Christ, I can do absolutely nothing. That's John 15, 5. Without him, I can do nothing. 
But then in Philippians it says, I can do all things with him. So here we move from absolute poverty to absolutely empowerment. And so many of us are trying to do things in our own strength. We're trying to earn some meritorious ability so that we can bring it to God. God listen, you got nothing to offer me. You and I are broken. But it's really humbling for us to admit that we have nothing to offer. You see, it goes against a major element called pride. And that's the thing, as we're going to see, pride is the thing that diminishes us. That's the place where Satan gets a stronghold in our life. But when you and I humble ourselves before Almighty God, he's the one that's going to show favor and grace into our lives, and we're going to see that. So it's not talking about financial poverty. It's not even talking about a retiring personality or an introvert or somebody who's you know shy and, and withdrawn from society. Actually, Peter was poor in spirit. How many know Peter was not a wallflower? You know, I've read the gospel. Peter was brash sometimes. He was loudmouth. He stuck his foot in his mouth more times than nothing. How many know that's true about Peter? You know, he, you know, he's telling you what he's thinking at all times. He's processing information. It's out loud all the time. How many know that about Peter? But you know, it's, it's an interesting. There's an incident in Peter's life that I really think defines something about what I'm talking about tonight, being poor in spirit. Peter is a fisherman. He owns a boat. So he's not, he's not financially poor. I'm not saying he's financially rich. He probably wasn't. But, you know, he's got a job. He's out in the water. He grew up on the lake. He fished all of his life. And he knew what he was doing. How many know if you fish all your life, you probably know what you're doing? Okay? So he's out there one night. He's fishing. And it's, you know, he's just, he's not catching anything. And I'm sure there were nights like that that Peter never caught anything, and it's frustrating. How many know when you labor and you have no return for your labor, it can be a little discouraging, right? And so we've all had those experiences. You've worked really hard, and then you've got nothing to show for it, okay? Peter's like that. Spends all night out there. Jesus is coming along now on the shore. I can just see this. And Jesus, oh, Peter, by the way, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that kind of, I'm convinced Peter was like, really? Who's the fisherman here, right? I mean, Jesus, yeah, I know you did a little carpentry, but this is fishing, buddy. You don't know anything about this stuff. How many just, it kind of maybe irk you a little bit when people know nothing about what you're doing. You spend 30 years in the trade, and then they start telling you what to do, right? That might bother you a little bit. Do you have a feeling that Peter was probably a little irked by this? You know, but he liked Jesus. He goes, I'll humor him. I'm going to do what he asks. In Peter's mind, he goes, Nothing's going to happen, right? He takes his net. He's got his fishing partners there. John and Andrew are all part of the fishing industry with these guys. Throws the net on the other side, and all of a sudden the boat goes, doop. It's tilted. He's got the largest catch he's ever had in his life. And this isn't the time to really be catching fish. He had done it. You know, Peter knew the tides, the hours, and the whole thing. And all of a sudden now he's catching the largest catch he's ever had. And he is like, what in the world just happened? Well, here's what Luke tells us in chapter 5. It says, When Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. What is Jesus, what is, what is Peter doing? I believe in this moment, Peter had the most profound and powerful realization in his life. Peter realized there was no area in his life that Jesus Christ was not Lord. 
That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's a recognition. There's nothing that you and I know more about life than God does. There's nothing that you and I can add to what God's done. There's nothing that you and I can bring to God and somehow, you know, I can, I can actually add to God something. No! We are absolutely broken. There was a realization, hey, I'm a sinner. That's what Peter recognized. That was a powerful moment. I like that. Peter was humbled. This is not a false humility. You know, this is not a poor sense of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a useless person. You know, we, it's not depreciating yourself. Okay, humility is not putting yourself down. You know, when people are putting themselves down, they're not humble. They're not humble. You go, what's humility? Humility is when you get to the place in your life where you forget about yourself. Humility is when it's not about you anymore. You've moved somewhere in your soul, and it's no longer you're the center and focus of your life. Christ is now the center and focus of your life. That's when you know you're walking in humility. It's about others. The most unhappy people. See, I didn't tell you this, but this message is really designed about happiness. How many know the word blessed are the poor in spirit? See, that word blessed is actually the Hebrew word asher, which means happy. It means choosing the right path against all the wrong paths. It means that you're content in what you're doing. There's a contentment there. You're a happy person. How many people in red there are really happy? A lot of them aren't, right? And isn't it interesting? We have, I'm going to show you we have all the world's goods in the world compared to most of the people. We're not still happy. See, we have the wrong understanding of what's going to make us happy. We think, if I can only have this, it'll make me happy. If I can only get this, it can make me happy. If I only achieve this, it'll make me happy. I'm going to say, no, none of those things will. The happy person is the person who's humble. The happy person is recognizing their true state before God. And they recognize God's the one that's going to take care of them. I love this. You know, it's not that warm mentality, and I love this one. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. You know, you know, there's a lot of people like that, you know. Who am I? You know, and they just feel so, you know, bad about who they are. Can I just tell you right now, here, I'm going to encourage you. You know, I was reading in the book of Daniel this week. Three times in that book, an angel came to Daniel and he said, You are my treasure. You are a, you're, you're a man whom I treasure. You're a man whom I treasure. Do you realize if you're a child of God tonight, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to say this to you. You are treasured by God. You are treasured by God. Pastor, how can you say that? I can appreciate Daniel being this amazing man to be treasured by God. But you know what? Peter says this. Every child of God, he says, you are my treasured possessions. God treasures you. You know, so how can you and I walk around going, I'm a nobody? God goes, no, no. You're my child. I treasure you. Now, if you're treasured by God, you're treasured by the most important person in the world. You are valued by the most important person in the world. Do not depreciate, depreciate yourself anymore. Are you hearing me? How many of you hear, heard, just, heard this? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Do not depreciate yourself. You are treasured by Almighty God. I need to reinforce that inside of our head. You know what's going to happen? When you believe that, you will begin to rise up and you will enter into God's purposes for your life. 
And actually, God likes to take the weak and broken things of this world and use them way beyond. Everyone goes, how in the world are they doing this? They can't be doing that. God goes, you're right. I'm doing it through them. Isn't that beautiful? should be encouraged by that. Hey, God, I'm a little clump of, I'm a little clump of, uh, of clay. God, there's no problem. I can use you if you will trust me. That's the big problem we have, trusting God. You know, this attitude, this idea of the word poor in spirit, it was developed over time. How many know words develop different meanings over time? Listen how the Hebrews thought about poor. First of all, uh, William Barclay says, it began by meaning simply they were physically poor. And then it went on to mean because they were poor, they had no influence or power or help or prestige. How many know poor people are often overlooked? Isn't that true in society? It was true then too. And then they went on to mean because they had no influence, therefore they were downtrodden and oppressed by men. And God says, you know what? I'm for the poor. God says, I'm going to protect them. So if you're poor, you're in a good place. If you're poor in spirit, you're in a better place. God is your advocate. Finally, they came to describe the person who, because he or she had no earthly resources, whatever, they put their full trust in God. So in Hebrew, the word poor was used to describe the humble and the helpless person who put their whole trust in God. Isn't that beautiful? I like that. I'm poor in spirit. I recognize I have nothing to offer God. I need everything from God. But the moment I acknowledge that, I receive from God. As a matter of fact, William, uh, sorry, Augustus Toppoli wrote a, a beautiful hymn called Rock of Ages. Listen to what the words, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. In other words, there's nothing I can give to God. I'm hanging on to everything God's done for me. Naked come to thee for dress. In other words, I have, I, I have nothing to give. I'm, 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 I'm poor. I'm poor in spirit. And he says, but God is the one who dresses me in his righteousness. I love that. You know, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Are you getting a sense that he caught a, a glimpse of this idea that, you know, we're, we're utterly ruined apart from God. But once we come to him, he'll provide for our needs. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's kind of reflected in that song. You know, one of my favorite preachers, He's long dead, and he wrote a lot. And I, I remember as a young pastor, I just read and read a lot of his commentaries and the way he thought and, and considered the Word of God. And I said, I just love listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I have a lot of books by him. And he's writing on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, what emphasis, this was written 60 years ago, what emphasis the world places on belief in self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. Look at its literature. He says this, that idea is absolutely controlling people at this present time. Indeed, I would say it's controlling the whole life outside of the Christian message. And I'm going to make a stronger statement. In the last 60 years, I think this message has even penetrated the Christian message so that many people today are preaching uh, a kind of a motivational, inspirational gospel that really is diminishing the role of Christ and elevating human effort. And if you're really paying attention, you, and I, I'm not going to name names or anything else, but you're going to see it. You and I need to understand something. We have nothing to offer God but our entire being. But we need to realize what we're offering Him is absolutely nothing. And once we come into that humility, that brokenness, and we acknowledge that before God, God can fill us with His presence and God can use us beyond anything we could ever imagine. 
That is so powerful. He says, then this is the whole principle on which life is run at the present time. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers that are, that are innate in yourself and let the whole world see and know them. The self-confidence, the self-assurance, the self-reliance. And, it's, and in terms of that fundamental belief that people believe they can bring in the kingdom. It's the whole basic fatal assumption that by acts, and then he goes on to say, even people today are believing that by acts of parliament that we can produce a perfect society. Now, remember I said we should be involved in the process, but don't let it ever fool you. Government will not bring in a perfect society. you got to get that straight. It won't happen. The only one who's going to do that is Jesus. And then, everywhere we see this this tragic confidence in the power of education and knowledge as such to save men, to transform them, and make them into decent human beings. Can I just say something? I believe in education. I believe in learning. But I believe it has to be built on the right foundation. Listen to me now. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to avoid evil is understanding. If you and I are not building it upon the knowledge of God, we have no fear of God inside of our soul, we're building an empty, empty world. And folks, I'm going to ask this question. How is it working for us? The last 60 years, we've been building on this foundation. How is it working for us? Can I just tell you how it's working for us? We have a society full of angry people. Society full of wounded people. Society full of hurt people. People who have been abused, misused. There's anger. There's unforgiveness. There's bitterness. And then we get people running around, you know, and all of a sudden they're so angry they start shooting other people. And we're seeing a lot of demonstration of this violence being expressed with anger at people they don't even know. And they walk out, you know, out of a building in Las, Las Vegas and they start gunning down as many people as they can possibly kill, and they don't have any concern about the life of the people they're taking. We have an angry, frustrated, you know, society. Isn't that true? And we think it's working. I don't think it's working. It's not working. We're broken. But, oh, we have all the answers, you know? No, we don't. Charles Swindoll says, how self-righteous we've become, how confident in and of ourselves, and with that attitude, how desperately unhappy we are. Isn't it amazing how unhappy people are? Do you know why people are unhappy? Because they're focusing on themselves. That's why we're unhappy. There's always something that could be better. There's always something we want. We're never satisfied where we're at. We're, We're constantly in a state of dissatisfaction. And we live in a culture that's breeding it. I mean, you think about the advertisement industry. What are they saying to you? You need this to be happy. How many know having the right toothpaste isn't going to make you happy? You know? I'm just being honest with you. You know? You're not eating the right peanut butter. Come on now. Isn't that nonsense? But we have been so brainwashed with all of this nonsense that we have all of these unrealistic expectations which later become unrealized expectations and we're miserable. It takes so much to make people happy today. You know what the sad part is? When they got everything they think they want, they're still unhappy. Because things will never make you happy. 
It's interesting to note in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins teaching on the attitudes that we need to cultivate. And we need to realize that our attitude is going to determine our behavior and what we are is demonstrated by what we do. You know the beauty of the Christian life? God works from the inside out, not from the outside in. As our attitude changes, so does our behavior. As our attitude changes, you know, I'm gonna t- this is going to encourage you tonight. All you need to change is your attitude, and everything you bought, your life will change. You're, and nothing may change at all. Your bank account may not change. Your relationships with other people may not change. Eventually they will if you have the right attitude. I believe everything will change if you have the right attitude. I would argue that the beginning point of transformation in all of our lives starts with how we think. And that's what repentance is, by the way. It's a change of mind. It's coming into an agreement with Almighty God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what's in you is going to come out. Conduct is nothing but the outgrowth of character. It's the outgrowth of our thought life. And so we're challenged not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There is a battle going on today. You know what's going on? In your mind. Here's the battlefield. We have to win the battle. It's right here. It's in our heads. Every moment there's a battle going on for your mind. Fiery darts of the enemy are coming. They're shot at you all the time. They're coming at us. You know, how are we going to handle this? Paul says we, we live in the world, but we don't wage war as the world does. You know, they have physical weapons. What do we have? Spiritual weapons. He says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have power, divine power to demolish these strongholds going on in our minds. You know, our culture today is talking about mental health more than any other topic. And they're trying to come at it apart from God. How is that going to work? I don't see it working. See, we have to take captive every thought, it says, and every argument and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And we have a culture that's actually waging war against the knowledge of God. It says we have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I remember years ago, I was a youth pastor. This was a long time ago. Ancient history, right? Well, I was a youth pastor. I got our youth group to go out and canvas the entire city of Fort McMurray. That's a lot of work. We passed out Bible studies to every home that wanted to receive them in our entire city. Isn't that amazing? We gave out hundreds of Bible studies. And we had our church name stamped on it and the phone number. And I just thought, hey, what's the best thing you can do is get the word of God inside of people? We'd say to them, hey, you want to do this Bible study? It's free. No obligation. We're not going to bug you. We're just giving it to you. We believe that if you do this Bible study, God can begin to speak into your life. A lot of people took them. Do you have a Bible? No, here's a Bible. I mean, we just went after it, right? Canvas the whole city. Sowing seed, right? One day, the secretary gets a phone call from this lady. She goes, I want to talk to somebody about the Bible study that was passed out. Guess who got the phone call? The youth pastor, because he was in charge of this, right? So I get the phone call from this lady. This lady says to me, I have a problem. I said, well, what's the difficulty? She says, I've been doing the Bible study. I've been reading the Bible, and I don't agree with what the Bible says. Now what do I do? I said, wow. I said, I'll tell you what. Let me ask you just a couple of questions, and maybe this will help you a little bit. I said, first of all, your idea versus the Bible idea. Where do you think your idea came from? She goes, well, I don't know. I said, let let me give you some pointers. Give me some hints. 
Do you think that your parents may have put some stuff inside of your mind? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, when you're a baby, what do you think? You know, you got, you're kind of a clean slate, right? So I'm sure your parents kind of influenced some of your thinking. What do you think? She goes, well, absolutely. What about your teachers? Did they have influence on your thinking? Well, yeah, of course. I said, don't you think the movie and the media have influence on your thinking? She says, absolutely. I said, I think what I'm going to say to you is that all of these things are shaping how your mind works. She goes, well, I can see that. Now she's following. She's tracking with me, right? I said, now I'm going to ask another question. I said, do you think that your parents are always right? No, she said, they're not always right. I said, do you think your teachers were always right? No, there was a few times they weren't right. I said, do you think our society's always right? She goes, no, I think there's times that they're wrong. <clears throat> I said, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. This is what I do. Everywhere my view is different from the Bible, I surrender my thoughts on the subject and accept what God's word has to say as being truthful and accurate. That's how you take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. She went, oh. Did you like that answer? Holy Spirit's pretty good, right? He's giving me this stuff while I'm talking to her. He's showing me what to say to her. How many think that's the right approach? What I'm basically saying is you have to decide. Are you going to believe the lies that have been fed to you or are you going to believe the truth of the Word of God? We have a choice. And we have that choice every single minute. The battle for our souls, our heart, where the enemy is trying to destroy our confidence and our faith is going on in our minds. What we need to do is know what the Word of God says so we stop believing the lies of the enemy and start believing the truth of what God says. Now, Jesus, this takes humility. How many can see you have to be in poor in spirit to have that kind of an attitude? Now, let's go along. I'm going to pick on something that we all can relate to. We're going to come into the Christmas season here. How many know there may be a a relational difficulty or two during the Christmas season? That might happen, right? Sure. What happens when even good Christians don't get along with each other? By the way, is that possible? Of course. Happens all the time. So how are we going to resolve these impasses that we get into with people? Well, let's pick on Jesus. I think he's the classic example. He's giving us, Paul is trying to deal with the church and there's conflict going on in these believers' lives. So here's what he says to them. You know what? He says, in your relationships with one another, Philippians 2.5, have the same mind or mindset as Jesus Christ. In other words, let's get on his page. Let's think like he thinks. How's he think? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So what is Jesus doing? He's not going to exercise his rights. How many think that our whole culture is driven by rights today? Well, this is owed me. You know, and, and sometimes we, we have these rights, and sometimes, you know, we, we can stand up for ourselves, and we have these rights, but what does Jesus do with his rights? Oh, it's interesting. Rather, instead of standing up for his rights, he makes himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He did what? He humbled himself. He became poor in spirit. You see, I'm equating poor in spirit with humility. See, Jesus said in John's gospel, I only do what the Father tells me to do, and I only say what the Father tells me to say. Could you imagine living a life like that? Okay, I'm getting up this morning, Lord. I have no idea what we're, what's going to go down here. I have no, you know, I have kind of a routine. I have things that I'm supposed to do, but I have no idea. You know, my, my plans can go out the window so fast, it's amazing. How many have that experience? You know, I have... You know, appointments in my docket, then they don't even show up. I have other people show up that weren't supposed to be there. I have all kinds of things happening in my life, just like you have happening in your life. You have no idea what tomorrow is going to hold for you. How are you going to start that day? I mean, see, 
Yeah, prayer. Lord, we're in this together. I have no idea what's coming down here, but I want to walk with you today. I only want to do what you want me to do. I only want you to say what you want me to say. That's it. Let's do it. Let's go on this day and do that. Powerful. Notice what it goes on to say here. Oh, he became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. But let's go to the next verse. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Whenever you and I humble ourselves, God exalts us. Whenever you and I humble ourselves, God shows favor to us. Isn't that powerful? I don't know about you. I'd rather have God showing favor to me than what people are going to do. So I don't mind stepping aside from my prerogatives and my rights to say, you know what, hey, you want that? That's great. Let's do it your way. No problem. Because I already know if I humble myself, God's going to show favor. I want God in that situation. That's who I want there. You know, listen, to be poor in spirit means knowing yourself, accepting yourself, and being yourself to the glory of God. You're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to be anything. You're just resting in who God designed you to be. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Isn't that great? Just be yourself. The best self you can possibly be for the glory of God. Let me move on. Second aspect here. How does being poor in spirit secure the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's interesting. Matthew uses that term. Instead of the kingdom of God, he uses the kingdom of heaven. Why do you think he did that? I think there's a reason. He was writing primarily to a a Jewish audience realizing that they were anticipating a material and political kingdom. So what does he do? He, he flips it on their, their ear, basically by saying, he wants us to reassess our thinking. He wanted them to reassess their thinking. Christ's kingdom is primarily a spiritual kingdom that has powerful earthly ramifications. So I think we need to get a hold of this. This is really important. We've got to get a hold of this idea. This, is, this isn't just about you know, what's going to happen in the material realm. No, this is what's happening in the spiritual realm. And I have a little saying that whatever it always happens first in the spiritual realm and then it's played out in the material realm. You need to know that. So it's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus basically saying, look, if you walk in humility, I promise you a little taste of heaven on earth. I'm not going to give you full heaven, but I'm going to give you a little taste of it. You're going, to, you're going to be securing God's grace and provision. You know, the Bible is filled with paradoxes, and they're, they're found in the Scriptures. The poor are the possessors of heaven's kingdom. Isn't that interesting? The rich, many times, only possess what earth has to offer, but the poor in spirit possess what God has to offer, and that's his entire kingdom forever and ever. Is that amazing? Wow. I think we're pursuing a lot of things that are all going to perish. If you think about how we're using our energy, what are you pursuing? You know, one day I even preached a sermon, you know, you know, I, I shared this illustration. The archaeologists love landfills. That's a gold mine for them, because then they can study ancient civilizations. They love finding the garbage dump. And can I tell you, every ancient civilization, most of them aren't even in existence now. Sometimes we can't even find them. But once we hit their garbage dump, it's like bonanza. Okay? Because then we study their history, their story, what they were into. Do you know everything that you own one day will end up in the landfill? And so one day I said this in a sermon. I said, everything you're working for, you're working to fill the landfill with. And you know what's really ironic? 
because someone in our church family had just sold their property, beautiful acreage, and the person they sold it to took a bulldozer, and all of the 30 years of labor that they had done, flowers and everything, they just bulldozed the whole thing, put it in a truck, and brought it to the landfill. He said, Pastor, that was a scary word. Is that amazing? Yeah, just a thought. How many people miss the kingdom of heaven because they're resting in their own adequacy rather than declaring their bankruptcy and resting on the work of Christ on Calvary? How many? Here's the attitude we need to have. I love the story of the prodigal son. You know, really, think about the story. What's going on? If you go to Luke 15, you've got to read verses 1 and 2 because it sets the setting. A bunch of Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because sinners were coming to him. Okay? What does Jesus do? He tells them, this, he tells them a parable, but there's three segments to it. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the two lost boys. Notice I said the two lost boys, not just the one lost boy. Because what happens is the first son finally realizes after doing his own thing, he says, I'm going to go back to my dad, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I have nothing to offer you. I've messed up. I've got nothing to give you, okay? There's no merit in my life. Just hire me like a hired person. But when he got up and went to his father, while he was still a long ways off, the father saw him, filled with compassion, ran to him and kissed him. That means he was, the father is reconciling. The father is taking the initiative in the reconciliation. By the way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God takes the initiative in bringing about our reconciliation with him. I mean, that's amazing. We're broken, folks. There's nothing you can come to God and say, hey, I got this to offer you, God. No, we come as sinners to Him. We come utterly ruined. Like Isaiah, we have a, rip, a, revel, uh, sorry, a revelation of who God is, and we go, man, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm bankrupt. That's what happened to this guy. You know, I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. See, how many get a sense in this story, the recognition of the absolute worthlessness to merit anything from the Father, the absolute bankruptcy of self-sufficiency or adequacy, on the part of the prodigal who turns a penitent. He becomes a penitent. He's repentant. Now contrast that attitude to the older brother. Okay? The older brother becomes angry because the father throws a party. He's upset. He's reflecting the attitude of whom? The Pharisees. Woo! Right? Because they're criticizing. Why are you letting these sinners into the kingdom? Because they recognize their spiritual poverty. Notice what he says. Father comes out. Father loves the older son. Notice he comes out. He's pleading with him, trying to reason with him. Isn't it amazing how God is so good with us? Even when we got a bad attitude. Come on now. He's reasoning with us. He says, he answers his father, Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you, and you've ne I've never disobeyed your orders. Really? Come on now. But that's what he thinks. He goes, I've always done the right thing. Look what I've done for you. You owe me something. How many of us, when we walk with God for a number of years, eventually we go, God, I did this, I gave up that, I've done this for you and this for you. How come you haven't done this for me? We develop that at wrong attitude. Rather, we should get up every morning and say, Lord, I don't deserve a thing. Can I just tell you, the day I gave my life to Jesus was so pronounced in my mind that... From that day, every good thing in my life has come because of that moment when I recognized my bankruptcy before God. Just said, I'm a sinner. I don't even deserve to be forgiven. Please forgive me, God. I'll serve you the rest of my life. 
Every good thing has come from that moment of surrender to God. Every good thing. Every day. Every blessing. I don't deserve these things. God is blessing me every single day. It's amazing. You know, the Jewish people understood that expression, poor to mean that man or woman who had no help outside of God and who put their trust absolutely in God. I've already quoted these texts from James. God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. God's telling us, humble ourselves and he'll lift us up. Isn't that powerful? To recognize our utter dependency upon God, to allow the mind of Christ to rule and reign in our lives, brings God's blessings into our lives. It's only when we abdicate the throne of our heart that we truly reign as kings. By the way, the Bible says that you and I are kings and priests. We're kings. We're royalty. Is this amazing? But for you and I to secure that position, we have to step off the throne of our souls and abdicate that self-throne. That It's going to be my way. You know... Warren Worsby says, because a child is so weak in himself, he commands all the strength of those around him. Isn't that the truth? See, we think we've got to be strong. No, God says, no, you've got to just trust me. You're already weak. God already knows how weak we are. Who are we kidding, right? Yeah. So, how can I cultivate a right attitude and have a little taste of heaven on earth. In other words, how can I truly be happy? I'm going to give you four things you can think about. First of all, accept God's estimate of yourself. That is, accept that we're weak apart from Him and He has something in mind that He wants us to contribute. I think that's step number one. Just go, hey, this is, God has this for me. I'm just going to accept the fact that I have nothing to offer God, but the moment I acknowledge that, God is going to do something. As a matter of fact, when I finally give up my agenda, God can start fulfilling His agenda. How many think that might be good? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue with you tonight. God's agenda is 10 times, 100 times, a million times better than your agenda. Why in the world are we carrying our stuff around? Okay, number two. Every day we must make a conscious decision to surrender to Him and be filled with His Spirit. Be filled with Him. Be under His influence. You know what? Get up in the morning and say, Lord, I need you. I need you to be, I need your Spirit. Come into my life. Fill me. We should be Spirit-filled people. Don't think that you don't need to pray this every day. Lord, would you just come and fill me? That's my prayer. Come and fill me. I need you, Lord. Focus on Christ and his blessings. You know what we tend to focus on? Our problems. Come on, let's be honest. How many here you say, I have a tendency to focus on my problems, Pastor? How many here can say that? And you know what happens when we do that? We leave the house and we're grumpy. We're trying to figure out how we're going to solve our problems. Okay. Here's what I'm telling you to do. I want you to get up next tomorrow morning and say, okay, forget all the problems. I'm not even think about those. God, I want to tell you all of the blessings that you brought into my life. Man, I'm out of bed this morning. I got health. Hey, praise God. You know what? You need to sit down and start naming your blessings one by one, and then you're going to find out how many things God has really done. You and I should start listing the blessings of God in our life. You know, you're going to get out of your bed. You start waking up and going, I want to thank you for, I have a beautiful wife. I have great kids. I want to thank you for pastoring in the most great church in the whole country. How did I deserve this? You know, you start thinking that way. You know what starts happening? You're a happy little person. You're full of gratitude. When you bump into people, go, I'm one of the most blessed people on the planet. But most of us walk around going, I'm grumpy. You know, I'm the Grinch. 
I got all these problems. I got all these headaches. I mean, I've been serving God faithfully and He's kind of letting me down. How many Christians develop that kind of a mindset rather than getting up and saying, God, what an amazing day it is. Who am I, the Son of Man, that you would even consider me, but your, your, your eye is upon me. I'm your treasured person. I'm one of the people that are ruling and reigning on the planet. I have power to change things in the world because I have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Wow. I don't even need to go talk to the prime minister. I'm going above him. Woo. Isn't that good? Yeah. What are we complaining about, man? How many are catching on? It's a choice. We can have the right attitude. We don't have to walk around shooting people because we're angry. We can walk around blessing people because we know we're blessed. People go, why are you so happy? You know, it's like that day in the restaurant. I was singing praises to God. People were trying to get bombed out of their mind in the restaurant. They're coming back in to try to sober up, and they go, what's he on? Because I was overjoyed. Waitress comes, they say, they want to know what you're taking. I said, go back and tell them I'm on Jesus. Yeah, I'm on Jesus. (laughs) I'm hoping they'll try to catch on. This is a lot better than what they're having, right? Finally, we need to serve other people. Amen? It's not about us. The most miserable people on the planet are self-focused. If you can get yourself off yourself, you'll be happy. Isn't that good? I mean, I don't know about you, Pastor. I'm going to close with a statement. Pride is the sin that invites Satan to gain access into our lives. Humility is the virtue that allows God to rule in our hearts. I want to tell a little story about humility. Humility is forgetting about yourself, and you're happy. When I was a youth pastor, we had a young man named Don. Patty remembers him. This guy was so selfless. You know, you ever been around a person who's selfless? They actually make you feel like you need to grow up and become a better Christian. This guy was a teenager. I'm going, God, if I could just be more like Don. You know, this guy's amazing. You know, he's always thinking about other people. And it was so beautiful. He was just a selfless person. And you just could not help but love this person. How many know if you're around selfless people, they're so, you just want to hug them all the time. They're just, they're so lovable because they're not focused on themselves. And then we had the youth pastor's son. He was a sharp kid. He was, you know, a leader. But he was totally lo- loaded into his own world. Believe me, he was full of himself. You know what I like about teenagers? They don't mask too much. They're just real, you know. So, you know, whatever they are, they are. You know, and I'm looking at these two guys. And one day, his name was Tim. One day, Don is on the bus. Tim's on the bus. They're going to school. And Don looks over, and here's Tim. Tim, what's wrong? Pulls, he broke his shoelace. He holds the shoelace, the broken shoelace, right? Don looks and goes, he says to himself, my shoelaces are like, a lot like his. He, he didn't even think about it. He just took off his shoelace and said, hey, don't worry, Tim. Here's mine. You see, that's humility. That's what's meaning poor in spirit. So all day long, Don is walking around in his shoe with no shoelace while Tim has his shoes perfectly you know, done right and he's got a shoelace on. Isn't that amazing? See, we think we'll be happy because we have a shoelace on our shoe. Can I tell you something? Don was the really happy person. He could have cared less. He had one shoe that was not functioning correctly. It didn't bother him in the least because he had the joy 
of helping his friend and brother in Christ, Tim. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Let's stand. How many here tonight say to yourself, my goodness, I, I need an attitude adjustment right now. That's me. I need a, I've got to start thinking differently. I've got to start operating a little differently. Is this powerful? How many go, I've just given you the secret to the happy life. I've just given you, and it, you know what? This, the good news is next week I'll continue the journey how to have the happy life. This is step one. Get the right attitude. Get the right attitude. Just recognize, hey, I need you, God. I can't, I can't be the person you want me to be in my own strength. I can't be that. Whatever your hang-ups and issues on your soul, whatever the pride issues you struggle with, and listen, everyone in this room struggles with things. Don't let people fool you. We all need God's grace. We all need God's grace. I need God's grace. He's been working on me for 42 years. I'm going, we're still not there yet, Lord. I can tell we're still not there yet. Maybe you've been a Christian longer than me. And you're going, yeah, you're right, Pastor. Still not there. Still not there. But I know right now, I can exchange my brokenness, my weakness, my sinfulness for your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. I can ask you to fill me with your spirit, but I have to empty myself in order to get you. I have to be poor in spirit in order to have heaven invade my soul. With this every head bowed, I'm going to pray for us right now. How many here say, you know what? I want a heavenly invasion in my soul tonight. I want an attitude readjustment. I want to wake up in the mornings filling my heart with thanksgiving and gratitude and not allowing my problems and my troubles and my sorrows to define my day. I I don't even want to focus on myself. I want to be able to be used of God to bless the people around me and to discover the great joy that God has in store, not only for me, but for everyone I touch. So, Father, that's our prayer today. You hear our cry tonight. You hear the souls of your children. We know we belong to you. We know you're, we're your treasured possessions. But, Lord, we want to have the right attitude. We want to walk in humility. We want to walk in poverty of spirit. We want to walk in joy. We want to be full of the Holy Ghost. We want to be full of gratitude, Father. We want to be focused on the needs of people around us. We want to minister to them and not allow the things around us to define our emotional, mental, and spiritual condition. We want to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We thank you for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.